Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. This is episode 317 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue to go around the world, now with a monkey. <laughs> Before we get to our story, which is Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly, I have a few podcast highlights, which is to say, not just one sort of a podcast, but several episodes, which I particularly have enjoyed. One is Radio Lab. It's called From Tree to Shining Tree. Now, Radio Lab is not what it used to be, in my opinion. It used to be so interesting, so different, so good. And lately, I think oh, an editor or a story person left, you know, one of those things that happens after a successful run on a TV series where you suddenly go, why is it not funny anymore? To me, Radio Lab has kind of hit that point. But this particular episode is amazing. You definitely need to listen to it. I don't want to say anymore. I don't want to ruin it for you. Okay, the next thing would be martini shot. And usually Rob Long talks for, you know, these are three minutes long maybe, about Hollywood, about writing scripts or meetings or what it's like to try and get a TV show done there right now. But the last few episodes have been fascinating because he's really talking a lot about our culture. And you could say pop culture, but I think it's how pop culture is affecting us, our culture. It's the same style as usual. A bit sardonic, a bit cynical, a bit funny. Usually very charitable. But um, anyway, it's been interesting me lately, so I thought I'd mention that. And then 99% Invisible, which you know is the show that's about, well, it's about design. But it's about design as in architecture, as in how our door handles put on, how our things around us that should be 99% invisible if they work right. <laughs> you get it? They talk about all sorts of things. And these two episodes, one's called America's Top Model, and it's about the scale model that was made of the Mississippi River Basin to help control flooding from 19... 1929 on, I believe. It doesn't sound interesting, but it's fascinating. And then there's another one about averages, and I'll have a link because I can't remember the name. It might be called Not Average or No More Average. That's a book title also. Anyway, I knew that we averaged things out so that you have large, medium, and small women's clothing so that you know, you know how much of a dose to give someone for generally like aspirin. But I didn't really stop to think about when that got to be a big thing in our culture and the kinds of effects it could have. Really an interesting show. So definitely listen to that. The 99% ones are no more usually than about 20 minutes long. So they're fairly short. And then the last one is a Desert Island Disc show, and I've mentioned them before. They're a British BBC radio show that has been going since the 1940s. They will be a, mm, 45 minutes long, maybe. Probably less in podcast form because they don't play all of the songs that people pick. And the premise is that they have a celebrity of some sort on, and they are going to be washed up on a desert island. What are the seven discs or songs that they would take with them? Usually in telling about why they chose the songs that people wind up telling about their lives also. So it's very interesting. And the particular episode that was so great was featuring Nadia, who won season six or season two in America of The Great British Bake Off or the Great British Baking Show. It gets called different things in different places, and I start losing track of it. Anyway, she was so charming and wonderful. And I loved the other contestants who made it to the end, but come on, didn't we all know Nadia was going to win? She is the kind of person who you want to be, you want your kids to be like her, and you're glad people like her are around to be an example to others. She's joyful, she's honest, she's just adorable. And um, if you watched that season, you know what I'm talking about. So definitely you should listen to it. 
And I think that's plenty to keep you busy when you're not listening to me. So let's talk about Around the World in 72 Days. We are going to listen to chapters 11 and 12, and that means that we are definitely over halfway around the world because there are only, I think, gosh, 17 or 18 episodes, chapters. (laughs) I've been talking about podcasts too long, chapters. And of course, the further away we get from what we would think of as the familiar things, England, France, the more interesting her narrative gets because now we're past the point of how is she going to manage packing things how is she going to manage getting from one place to another to things of life that are just very different and of course they're very different now even because this book was written so long ago some of the things I liked it best that we just listened to were the description of the Grand Oriental Hotel Did everybody not want to stay there? I wanted to be on that veranda drinking a lemon squash and watching young lovers in silhouette who didn't know they were being watched. It sounded cool and restful. Not really the kind of place where Nellie Bly would hang out a lot if she wasn't being delayed, but it just evoked a particular time and feeling. Very romanticized in our life, of course. I loved the fact that everybody could give $20 gold pieces, but they weren't going to be taken or valued as money. They were only valued as jewelry, which shows you the context for everything, including money. The story of the crow coming in and eating her breakfast, since she is famously a not early morning person. I thought it was going to be a monkey. I loved that it was a crow. The Parsi Theater... I found that to be fascinating. All the people going and the description of how the show went and the storyline, huh? That was really great. And then topping it all off, when she's back on the ship and she's next door to the cabin full of children, which, oh my gosh, what selfish parents on two counts. First of all, to foist those kids onto everybody else around them. I mean, when they're sleeping overnight. And then selfish, because what about the kids? What if there was an emergency? What about just they would like to have their parents nearby? Oh, my word. And so that's why sharing Nellie Bly's feelings about the whole thing, I loved the way the narrator read the story about the papa coming in and waking the children up and going, what does the moo-moo cow say to the baby? (laughs) And her answer and how he got all offended and I thought well that hasn't changed has it the most offensive people when you point it out to them they get super offended because you're daring to criticize them I love 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 Nellie Bly and the way she just shines through in this story I really love the way the narrator communicates her voice as I've said before so We don't want to wait around any longer. We certainly don't want to cause a further delay in travel. So let's dive in. Around the World in 72 Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 11 Against the Monsoon That evening we sailed for Hong Kong. The next day the sea was rough, and headwinds made the run slower than we had hoped for. Towards noon, almost all the passengers disappeared. The roughness increased, and the cook enjoyed a holiday. There was some chaffing among the passengers who remained on deck. During dinner the chief officer began to relate the woes of people he had seen suffering from the dire disease that threatened now to even overpower the captain. I listened for quite a while, merely because I could not help hearing, and if there was anything the chief could do well, it was relating anecdotes. At last one made me get up and run, it was so vivid, and the moment the doctor, who sat opposite, saw me go, he got up and followed. I managed to overcome my faintness without really being sick, but the doctor gave way entirely. I went back to dinner to find the cause of our misery had disappeared. When I saw him later, his face was pale, and he confessed contritely that his realistic joke had made even him seasick. During the roughness that followed, the doctor would always say to me pleadingly, Don't make a start, for if you do, I will have to follow. The terrible swell of the sea during the monsoon was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. 
I would sit breathless on deck watching the bow of the ship standing upright on a wave, then dash headlong down as if intending to carry us to the bottom. Some of the men made no secret of being seasick, and were stretched out in their chairs on deck where they might hope to catch the first breath of air. Although there was a dreadful swell, still the atmosphere was heavy and close. Sometimes I felt as if I would smother. One man who had been quite attentive to me became seasick. I was relieved when I heard it. Still, I felt very cruel when I would see his pale face and hear him plead for sympathy. As heartless as it was, I could not sympathize with a seasick man. There was an effort on the part of the others to tease the poor fellow. When I sat down on deck, they would carefully take away all the chairs, excepting those occupied by themselves. But it mattered little to the seasick man. He would quietly curl up on his rugs at my feet, and there lie, in all his misery, gazing at me. "'You would not think that I am enjoying a vacation, but I am,' he said plaintively to me one day. "'You don't know how nice I can look,' he said pathetically at another time. "'If you would only stay over at Hong Kong for a week, you would see how pretty I can look.' "'Indeed, such a phenomenon might induce me to remain there six weeks,' I said coldly. At last someone told him I was engaged to the chief officer, who did not approve of my talking to other men, thinking this would make him cease following me about, but it only served to increase his devotion. Finding me alone on deck one stormy evening, he sat down at my feet, and holding to the arms of my chair, began to talk in a wild way. "'Do you think life is worth living?' he asked. "'Yes, life is very sweet.' The thought of death is the only thing that causes me unhappiness, I answered truthfully. You cannot understand it, or you would feel different. I could take you in my arms and jump overboard, and before they would know it, we would be at rest, he said passionately. You can't tell. It might not be rest, I began, and he broke in hotly. I know, I know, I can show you. I will prove it to you. Death by drowning is a peaceful slumber, a quiet drifting away. Is it? I said, with a pretense of eagerness. I feared to get up, for I felt the first move might result in my burial beneath the angry sea. You know, tell me about it. Explain it to me, I gasped, a feeling of coldness creeping over me as I realized that I was alone with what for the time was a madman. Just as he began to speak, I saw the chief officer come on deck and slowly advance towards me. I dared not call. I dared not smile, lest he should notice. I feared the chief would go away, but no, he saw me, and with a desire to tease the man who had been so devoted, he came up on tiptoe. Then, clapping the poor fellow on the back, he said, "'What a very pretty love scene!' "'Come!' I shouted, breaking away before the startled man could understand. The chief, still in a spirit of fun, took my hand, and we rushed down below. I told him and the captain what had occurred." and the captain wanted to put the man in irons, but I begged that he be left free. I was careful afterwards not to spend one moment alone and unprotected on deck. The Parsees, traveling first class, were compelled to go below when a heavy swell was on. We welcomed the storm on that account, if on no other, because they had a peculiar habit of dropping off their slippers when they sat down. As they wore no hose, this habit was annoying. The doctor seriously affirmed that every time he sat down anywhere a Parsee was sure to squat alongside, drop his shoes, and turn his bare brown feet up to be gazed upon. The monkey proved a good seaman. One day, when I visited it, I found the young men had been toasting its health. It was holding its aching head when I went in, and evidently thinking I was the cause of the swelling, it sprang at me, making me seek safety in flight. The hurricane deck was a great resort for lovers, so Chief Officer Sleeman told me, and evidently he knew, for he talked a great deal about two American girls who had traveled to Egypt, I believe, on the Thames when he was first officer of it. He had lost their address, but his heart was true, for he had lost a Filipina to one, and though he did not know her habitation, he brought the Filipina and put it in a bank in London, where it awaits some farther knowledge of the fair young American's whereabouts. Lovers were not plentiful on the Oriental. There were so few passengers. The Spanish minister had an eye for beauty and a heart for romance, though he led a most quiet life on shipboard, and was the very essence of gallantry. I was very much in love with a woman once, 
Traveling on the same ship with me was a woman, a beautiful woman, most beautiful indeed. I watched her, she watched me, and my eyes told her I admired her, and her eyes said back to me that they were pleased that it should be so. Two men were traveling with her. One day I awkwardly knocked against her in the corridor, and I said, I beg your pardon, miss, to which she answered lowly and sadly, I beg your pardon, missus. When she came to dinner that night, her eyes were red from weeping. I caught her glance. It spoke so sadly to me, her lips trembling like a grieved child's. She started in to drink a great deal of wine, but one look from me made her push the glass away. Her husband, for she was married, was a very brutal fellow, and my love for the beautiful woman almost made me forget my family and hers and my longing to claim her as my heart's companion. They left us at the first port. I stood on deck as they came up to go ashore. Her husband and his comrade went down the steps. Starting to follow, she saw me and stopped. Her eyes said to me, as plain as speech, Say but one word and I am yours. And although my feelings made me spring towards her, I paused before touching her, and my aching eyes said, Go, be a good woman. She went slowly down into the boat. Rising to her feet as it moved off, she held out her arms to me, and with a great despairing cry fell back in the boat insensible. I never saw her since. I never knew her name. But I know as well as I know you are there. That beautiful woman loved me. And you? I said inquiringly. I, with a slight shrug of the shoulders, accompanied by a little cold laugh, which was not unpleasant to hear, it somehow reminded me of the sound of dripping water on a hot day. Ah, oh, she was a beautiful lady, very, very beautiful, most beautiful indeed. But, Signorita, I have a son older than you, and I am devoted to my family. Impatiently, I turned to an Englishman who was sitting on the other side. Why do Englishmen always say, Dear me, I lazily asked. Dear me, do they? I can't say, don't you know? Well, I can. It's because they think so wonderfully much of themselves, I said with a laugh. Dear me, really, was all he said in reply. You are so jolly clever now. Can you tell me why Eve did not take the measles? He asked after a time. Cause she Adam. Adam, I said in a bowery tone. I say now, you are jolly clever, but can you tell me why Cain did not take them? Hasten now, I cannot dwell. Because he wasn't able. Now don't dwell, but move on, and tell me what chestnuts are, I said teasingly. Oh, come now. I'm here. I say, really, you Americans have such jolly queer language. Dear me, I can't tell. I thought you could. You have such a jolly supply of them, don't you know? Dear me, he exclaimed, as he rushed down below to brace on, on a whiskey and soda. It is a wonderful amount of whiskey and soda Englishmen consume. They drink it at all times and places. There was an Englishman on the Oriental who drank whiskey and soda all the day, half a dozen different wines at dinner, and then complained, as he invariably staggered away from the table, that the wine list had no variety. Talk about cranks. One woman told the chief officer one day that she wanted a cabin just over the ship's screw so she could see that the ship was going. She got it, and she was the worst seasick woman I ever saw. Another passenger complained because the berths had spring mattresses. One night during the monsoon, the sea washed over the ship in a frightful manner. I found my cabin filled with water, which, however, did not touch my berth. Escape to the lower deck was impossible, as I could not tell the deck from the angry pitching sea. As I crawled back into my bunk, a feeling of awe crept over me, and with it a conscious feeling of satisfaction. I thought it very possible that I had spoken my last word to any mortal, that the ship would doubtless sink, and with it all I thought, if the ship did go down, no one would be able to tell whether I could have gone around the world in seventy-five days or not. The thought was very comforting at that time, for I felt then I might not get around in one hundred days. I could have worried myself over my impending fate had I not been a great believer in letting unchangeable affairs go their way. If the ship does go down, I thought, there is time enough to worry when it's going. All the worry in the world cannot change it one way or the other. And if the ship does not go down, I only waste so much time.
So I went to sleep and slumbered soundly until the breakfast hour. The ship was making its way laboriously through a very frisky sea when I looked out, but the deck was drained, even if it was not dry. When I went out, the jolly Irish lad, for whom I had a great fondness, was stretched out languidly in a willow chair with a bottle of champagne on one armrest and a glass on the other. Every little motion of the ship made him vow that when he reached Hong Kong he would stay there until he returned to England over land. "'You should have seen my cabin made last night,' he said with a laugh when I sat down beside him. The man he spoke of, a very clever Englishman, was the man who posed as a woman-hater, and naturally we enjoyed any joke at his expense. Finding our cabin filling with water, he got out of bed, put on a life preserver, and bailed out the cabin with a cigarette box. I laughed until my sides ached at the mental picture presented to me of the little chunky Englishman in an enormous life preserver, bailing out his cabin with a tiny cigarette box. Even the box of the deadly cigarette seems to have its Christian mission to perform. While I was wiping away the tears brought there by the strength of my laughter, the Englishman came up, and hearing what amused us, said, "'While I was bailing out the cabin, the boy, as we fondly called him, clung to the upper berth all the time, groaning and praying. He was certain the ship would sink, and I could not persuade him to get out of the top berth to help bail. He would do nothing but groan and pray.' The boy answered with a laugh, "'I did not want to sleep the rest of the night in wet pajamas,' which caused the woman-hater to flee. Later in the day the rolling was frightful. I was sitting on deck when all at once the ship went down on one side like a wagon in a deep rut. I was thrown in my chair clear across the deck. A young man endeavored to come to my assistance just as the ship went the other way in a still deeper sea rut. It flung me back again, and only by catching hold of an iron bar did I save my neck at least, for in another moment I would have been dashed through the skylight into the dining hall on the deck below. As I caught the bar, I saw the man who had rushed to my assistance turned upside down and land on his face. I began to laugh. His position was so ludicrous. When I saw he made no move to get up, I ran to his side, still convulsed with laughter. I found his nose was bleeding profusely, but I was such an idiot that the sight of blood only served to make the scene to me more ridiculous. Helping him to a chair, I ran for the doctor, and from laughing could hardly tell him what I wanted. The man's nose was broken, and the doctor said he would be scarred for life. Even the others laughed when I described the accident, and though I felt a great pity for the poor fellow, hurt as he was in my behalf, still an irresistible impulse to laugh would sweep over me every time I endeavored to express my appreciation of his attempt to assist me. Our passengers were rather queer. I always enjoyed the queerness of people. One day, when speaking about the boat, I said, "'Everything is such an improvement on the Victoria. The food is good, the passengers are refined, the officers are polite, and the ship is comfortable and pleasant.' When I finished my complimentary remarks about the ship, a little bride, who had been the source of interest to us, looked up and said, "'Yes, everything is very nice, but the life-preservers are not quite comfortable to sleep in.' Shocked amazement spread over the countenances of all the passengers, and then in one grand shout that dining-room resounded with laughter. The bride said that ever since they left home on their bridal tour they had been sleeping in the life-preservers. They thought that was the thing to do on board a ship. But I never knew how queer our passengers were until we reached Hong Kong, which we did two days ahead of time, although we had the monsoon against us. When we landed, a man sued the company for getting him in ahead of time. He said he bought his tickets to cover a certain length of time, and if the company got him in before it expired, they were responsible for his expenses, and they had to pay his hotel bill. The captain asked a minister who was on board to read the service one Sunday. He did so, and when he reached Hong Kong, he put in a bill for two pounds. He said he was enjoying a vacation, and did not propose to work during that time unless he was paid for it. The company paid, but warned the officers not to let ministers read the service thereafter until they knew their price. The evening of December 22nd, we all sat on deck in a dark corner. The men were singing and telling stories. The only other woman who was able to be up and I were the interested and appreciative audience. We all felt such an eagerness for mourning, and yet the eagerness was mingled with much that was sad. Knowing that early in the day we would reach Hong Kong, and while it would bring us new scenes and new acquaintances, it would take us from old friends.
Chapter 12. British China We first saw the city of Hong Kong in the early morning. Gleaming white were the castle-like homes on the tall mountainside. We fired a cannon as we entered the bay, the captain saying that this was the custom of mail ships. A beautiful bay was this magnificent basin, walled on every side by high mountains. Once within this natural fortified harbor we could discern, in different directions, only small outlets between the mountains, but so small indeed they appeared that one could hardly believe a ship would find space large enough for passage. In fact, these outlets are said to be dangerously narrow, the most vigilant care being necessary until the ship is safely beyond on the ocean blue. Mirror-like was the bay in the bright sun, dotted with strange craft from many countries, heavy ironclads, torpedo boats, mall steamers, Portuguese lorcas, Chinese junks and sampans. Even as we looked, a Chinese ship wended its way slowly out to sea. Its queer broad stern hoisted high out of the water, and the enormous eye gracing its bow were to us most interesting. A graceful thing, I thought it, but I heard an officer call it most ungraceful and unshapely. Hong Kong is strangely picturesque. It is a terraced city, the terraces being formed by the castle-like, arcaded buildings perched tier after tier up the mountain's verdant side. The regularity with which the houses are built in rows made me wildly fancy them a gigantic staircase, each stair made in imitation of castles. The doctor, another gentleman, and I left the boat, and walking to the pier's end, selected sedan chairs, in which we were carried to the town. The carriers were as urgent as our hackmen around railway stations in America. There is a knack of getting into a chair properly. It is placed upon the ground, the carrier tilts the shafts down, and the patron steps inside, back towards the chair, and goes into it backward. Once seated, the carriers hoist the chair to their shoulders, and start off with a monotonous trot, which gives the chair a motion not unlike that of a pacing saddle-horse. We followed the road along the shore, passing warehouses of many kinds, and tall balconied buildings filled with hundreds of Chinese families on the flat house plan. The balconies would have lent a pleasing appearance to the houses had the inhabitants not seemed to be enjoying a washing jubilee, using the balconies for clotheslines. Garments were stretched on poles after the manner of hanging coats so they will not wrinkle, and those poles were fastened to the balconies until it looked as if every family in the street had placed their old clothing on exhibition. The town seemed in a state of untidiness. The road was dirty. The mobs of natives we met were filthy. The houses were dirty. The numberless boats lying along the wharf, which invariably were crowded with dirty people, were dirty. Our carriers were dirty fellows. Their untidy pigtails twisted around their half-shaven heads. They trotted steadily ahead, snorting at the crowds of natives we met to clear the way. A series of snorts or grunts would cause a scattering of natives more frightened than a tie-walker would be at the tooting of an engine's whistle. Turning off the shore road, our carrier started up one of the roads which wind about from tier to tier up the mountain. My only wish and desire was to get as speedily as possible to the office of the Oriental and Occidental Steamship Company, to learn the earliest possible time I could leave for Japan, to continue my race against time around the world. I had just marked off my thirty-ninth day. Only thirty-nine days since leaving New York, and I was in China. I was leaving particularly elated, because the good ship Oriental not only made up the five days I had lost in Colombo, but reached Hong Kong two days before I was due, according to my schedule, and that with the northeast monsoon against her. It was the Oriental's maiden trip to China, and from Colombo to Hong Kong she had broken all previous records. I went to the O&O &O office feeling very much elated over my good fortune, with never a doubt but that it would continue. "'Will you tell me the date of the first sailing for Japan?' I asked a man in the office. "'In one moment,' he said, and going into an inner office he brought out a man who looked at me inquiringly, and when I repeated my question said, "'What is your name?' "'Nellie Bly,' I said in some surprise. "'Come in, come in,' he said nervously. We followed him in, and after we were seated, he said, "'You are going to be beaten.' "'What? I think not. I have made up my delay,' I said, still surprised, 
wondering if the Pacific had sunk since my departure from New York, or if all the ships on that line had been destroyed. "'You are going to lose it,' he said with an air of conviction. "'Lose it? I don't understand. What do you mean?' I demanded, beginning to think he was mad. "'Aren't you having a race around the world?' he asked, as if he thought I was not Nellie Bly. "'Yes, quite right. I am running a race with time,' I replied. "'Time? I don't think that's her name.' "'Her? Her?' I repeated, thinking, "'Poor fellow, he is quite unbalanced,' and wondering if I dared wink at the doctor to suggest to him the advisability of our making a good escape. "'Yes, the other woman. She is going to win. She left here three days ago.' I stared at him. I turned to the doctor. I wondered if I was awake. I concluded the man was quite mad, so I forced myself to laugh in an unconcerned manner, but was only able to say stupidly, "'The other woman?' "'Yes,' he continued briskly. "'Did you not know? The day you left New York, another woman started out to beat your time, and she's going to do it. She left here three days ago. You probably met somewhere near the Straits of Malacca.' She says she has authority to pay any amount to get ships to leave in advance of their time. Her editor offered one or two thousand dollars to the O&O if they would have the Oceanic leave San Francisco two days ahead of time. They would not do it, but they did do their best to get her here in time to catch the English mail for Ceylon. If they had not arrived long before they were due, she would have missed that boat, and so have been delayed ten days. But she caught the boat and left three days ago, and you will be delayed here five days." "'That is rather hard, isn't it?' I said quietly, forcing a smile that was on the lips but came from nowhere near the heart. "'I'm astonished you did not know anything about it,' he said. "'She led us to suppose it was an arranged race.' "'I do not believe my editor would arrange a race without advising me,' I said stoutly. "'Have you no cables or messages for me from New York?' "'Nothing,' was his reply. "'Probably they do not know about her.' I said more cheerfully. Yes, they do. She worked for the same newspaper you do until the day she started. I do not understand it, I said quietly, too proud to show my ignorance on a subject of vital importance to my own well-doing. You say I cannot leave here for five days? No, and I don't think you can get to New York in eighty days. She intends to do it in seventy she has letters to steamship officials at every point, requesting them to do all they can to get her on. Have you any letters? Only one, from the agent of the P&O, requesting the captains of their boats be good to me, because I am travelling alone. That's all, I said with a little smile. Well, it's too bad, but I think you have lost it. There is no chance for you. You will lose five days here, and five in Yokohama, and you are sure to have a slow trip across at this season. Just then a young man, with the softest black eyes and a clear pale complexion, came into the office. The agent, Mr. Harmon, introduced him to me as Mr. Furman, the purser of the Oceanic, the ship on which I would eventually travel to Japan and America. The young man took my hand in a firm, strong clasp, and his soft black eyes gave me such a look of sympathy that it only needed his kind tone to cheer me into a happier state. I went down to the Oriental to meet you, Mr. Harmon thought it was better. We want to take good care of you now that you are in our charge, but, unfortunately, I missed you. I returned to the hotel, and as they knew nothing about you there, I came here, fearing that you were lost. I have found kind friends everywhere, I said, with a slight motion towards the doctor, who was speechless over the ill luck that had befallen me. I am sorry to have been so much trouble to you. Trouble? You are with your own people now, he said kindly. You must not mind about the possibility of someone getting around the world in less time than you may do it. You have had the worst connections it is possible to make, and everybody knows the idea originated with you, and that others are merely trying to steal the work of your brain. So, whether you get in before or later, people will give you the credit of having originated the idea. I promised my editor that I would go around the world in seventy-five days, and if I can accomplish that, I shall be satisfied. I stiffly explained. I am not racing with anyone. I would not race. If someone else wants to do the trip in less time, that is their concern. If they take it upon themselves to race against me, it is their lookout that they succeed. I am not racing. I promise to do the trip in seventy-five days, and I will do it. 
although had I been permitted to make the trip when I first proposed it over a year ago, I should then have done it in sixty days. We returned to the hotel, where a room had been secured for me, after arranging the transfer of my luggage and the monkey from the Oriental to the Oceanic. I met a number of people after Tiffin who were interested in my trip, and were ready and anxious to do anything they could to contribute to my pleasure during my enforced stay. Having but the one dress, I refused to attend any dinners or receptions that were proposed in my honor. During the afternoon, the wife of a prominent Hong Kong gentleman waited upon me to place herself and her home at my disposal. She was anxious that I should make her home mine during my stay, but I told her I could not think of accepting her kindness, because I would wish to be out most of the time, and could not make my hours conform to the hours of the house, and still feel free to go, come, and stay as I pleased. Despite her pleadings, I assured her I was not on pleasure-bent, but business, and I considered it my duty to refrain from social pleasures, devoting myself to things that lay more in the line of work. I had dinner on the Oriental. As I bade the captain and his officers farewell, remembering their kindness to me, I had a wild desire to cling to them, knowing that with the morning light the Oriental would sail, and I would be once again alone in strange lands with strange people. That evening the purser of the Oceanic, another acquaintance, and I were carried in chairs up a winding road, arched with green trees, on which the leaves hung motionless and still in the silent night. Our lazy voices, as occasionally we spoke softly to each other, and the steady, monotonous slap-slap-slap of the bare feet of our carriers made the only break in the slumbering stillness. All earth seems to have gone to rest. Silently we went along, now getting, by dim gas lamps at garden gates, glimpses of comfortable homes in all their eastern splendor, and then, for a moment emerging from beneath the overlapping arch of verdant trees, we would get a faint glimmer of the quivering stars and the cloudless heavens. The ascent was made at last. We were above the city, lying dark and quiet, but no nearer the glorious starlit sky. A little rush through a wide gate in a high wall, a sudden blindness in a road banked and roofed by foliage, a quick lowering to the ground at the foot of wide steps that led to an open door through which a welcoming light shed its soft, warm rays upon us, and we had reached our journey's end. Inside, where a cordial welcome awaited us, was a bright wood fire before which I longed to curl up on a rug and be left alone to dream, dream. But there were friends instead of dreams, and realities in the shape of a splendid dinner, a table graced with a profusion of tropical blossoms, a man handsomer than an ideal hero at its head, a fine menu, guests, handsome, witty, and just enough in number to suit my ideas, were the items of what made up an ideal evening. It is said, people do not grow old in Hong Kong. Their youthful looks bear ample testimony to the statement. I asked the reason why, and they said it is because they are compelled to invent amusements for themselves, and by inventing they find not time to grow blasé, but youth and happiness. The theater in Hong Kong knows few professional troops, but the amateur actors in the English colony leave little to be desired in the way of splendid entertainments. The very best people in town take part, and I believe they all furnish their own stage costumes. The regiment stationed there turn out very credible actors in the persons of the young officers. I went one night to see Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, as given by the Amateur Dramatic Club of Hong Kong. It was a new version of the old story filled with local hits arranged for the club by a military captain. The music was by the bandmaster of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The beautiful and artistic scenery was designed and executed by two army men, as were the limelight effects. Spectators came to the theater in their chairs instead of carriages. Inside, the scene was bewitching. A rustling of soft gowns, the odor of flowers, the fluttering of fans, the sounds of soft, happy whispering, a maze of lovely women in evening gowns mingling with handsome men in the regulation evening dress. What could be prettier? If American women would only ape the English in going bonnetless to the theaters, we would forgive their little aping in other respects and call it even. Upon the arrival of the governor, the band played God Save the Queen, during which the audience stood. Happily, they made it short. The play was pleasantly presented, the actors filling their roles most creditably, especially the one taking the part of Ally Sloper. Afterwards, the sight of handsomely dressed women stepping into their chairs, the daintily colored Chinese lanterns hanging fore and aft marking the course the carriers took in the darkness, was very oriental and affective. 
It is a luxury to have a carriage, of course, but there is something even more luxurious in the thought of owning a chair and carriers. A fine chair, with silver-mounted poles and silk hangings can be bought, I should judge, for little more than twenty dollars. Some women keep four and eight carriers. They are so cheap that one can afford to retain a number. Every member of a well-established household in Hong Kong has his or her own private chair. Many men prefer a coverless willow chair with a swinging step, while many women have chairs that close entirely so they can be carried along the street secure against the gaze of the public. Convenient pockets, umbrella stands, and places for parcels are found in all well-appointed chairs. At every port I touched I found so many bachelors, men of position, means, and good appearance, that I naturally began to wonder why women do not flock that way. It was all very well some years ago to say, Go west, young man. But I would say, Girls, go east. There are bachelors enough and to spare, and a most happy time do these bachelors have in the east. They are handsome, jolly, and good-natured. They have their own fine homes with no one but the servants to look after them. Think of it, and let me whisper, Girls, go east. The second day after my arrival, Captain Smith of the Oceanic called upon me. I expected to see a hard-faced old man, so when I went into the drawing-room and a youthful, good-looking man, with the softest blue eyes that seemed to have caught the tinge of the ocean's blue on a bright day, smiled down at me, I imagine I must have looked very stupid indeed. I looked at the smooth, youthful face with its light brown mustache, and I felt inclined to laugh at the long, iron-gray beard my imagination had put upon the captain of the Oceanic. I caught a laughing gleam of the bluest of blue eyes, and I thought of imaginary stern ones, and had to smother another insane desire to laugh. I looked at the tall, slender, shapely body, and recalled the imaginary short legs holding upright a wide circumference under an ample waistcoat, and I laughed audibly. "'You were so different to what I imagined you would be,' I said afterwards, when we talked over our first meeting. "'And I could not believe you were the right girl. You were so unlike what I had been led to believe,' he said with a laugh, in a burst of confidence. I was told you were an old maid with a dreadful temper. Such horrible things were said about you that I was hoping you would miss our ship. I said, if you did come, I supposed you would expect to sit at my table, but I would arrange so you should be placed elsewhere. The captain took me out to see Happy Valley that day before we separated. In gin rickshaws we rode by the parade and cricket grounds where some lively games were played, the city hall and the solid, unornamented barracks among smooth, tree-lined roads, out to where the mountains make a nest of one level green space. This level has been converted to a race course. The judge's stand was an ordinary, commonplace race course stand, but the stands erected by and for private families were built of palms and were more pleasing because they were out of the usual. During the month of February, races are held here annually. They last three days, and during that period everybody stops work, rich and poor alike, flocking to the race course. They race with native Mongolian ponies, having no horses, and the racing is pronounced most exciting and interesting. Happy Valley lines the hillside. There are congregated in the graveyards all the different sects and nationalities in Hong Kong. The fire worshippers lie in ground joining the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, and the Catholics, and the Mohammedans are just as close by. That those of different faiths should consent to place their dead together in this lovely tropical valley is enough to give it the name of Happy Valley, if its beauty did not do as much. In my estimation, it rivals in beauty the public gardens, and visitors use it as a park. One wanders along the walks looking at the beautiful shrubs and flowers, never heeding that they are in the valley of death, so thoroughly is it robbed of all that is horrible about graveyards. We rode back to town through the crowded districts, where the natives huddle together in all their filth. It is said that over 100,000 people live within a certain district in Hong Kong, not exceeding one-half square mile, and they furthermore positively affirm that 1,600 people live in the space of an acre. This is a sample of the manner in which the Chinese huddle together. They remind me of a crowd of ants on a lump of sugar. An effort is being made in Hong Kong to compel owners to build differently, so as to make the huddling and packing impossible, for the filth that goes with it invariably breeds disease. Queen's Road is interesting to all visitors. In it is the Hong Kong Club, where the bachelors are to be found, 
the post office, and, greater than all, the Chinese shops. The shops are not large, but the walls are lined with black wood cabinets, and one feels a little thrill of pleasure at the sight of the gold, the silver ivory carvings, exquisite fans, painted scrolls, and the odor of lovely sandalwood boxes. Coming faintly to the visitor creates a feeling of greed. One wants them all, everything. The Chinese merchants cordially show their goods, or follow as one strolls around, never urging one to buy, but cunningly bringing to the front the most beautiful and expensive part of their stock. Chin Chin, which means good day, goodbye, good night, how are you, or anything one may take from it, is the greeting of Chinamen. They all speak mongrel English, called Pidgin, or Pidgin in English. It is impossible to make them understand pure English. Consequently, Europeans, even housekeepers, use Pidgin English when addressing the servants. The servants are men, with the exception of the nurses, and possibly the cooks. To the uninitiated, it sounds absurd to hear men and women addressing servants and merchants in the same idiotic language with which fond parents usually cuddle their offspring. But even more laughable is it to hear men swear in pigeon English at an unkind or unruly servant. Picture a man with an expression of frenzied rage upon his countenance, saying, Go to helly, savvy! Pigeon, or pigeon, is applied to everything. One will hear people say, Have got pigeon, which means they have business to look after. Or if a Chinaman is requested to do some work which he thinks is the duty of another, he will say, No belongy, boy pigeon. While strolling about the Chinese localities, seeing shops more worthy of a visit, becoming more truly Chinese, I came upon an eating house from which a conglomeration of strange odors strolled out and down the road. Built around a table in the middle of the room was a circular bench. The diners perched on this bench like chickens on a fence, not letting their feet touch the floor or hang over, nor hunkering down, nor squatting cross-legged like a Turk or tailor, but sitting down with their knees drawn up until knees and chin met. They held large bowls against their chins, pushing the rice energetically with their chopsticks into their mouths. Cup after cup of tea is consumed, not only at meals, but at all hours during the day. The cup is quite small and saucerless, and the tea is always drank minus sugar and cream. Professional writers, found in nooks and recesses of prominent thoroughfares, are interesting personalities. Besides writing letters for people, they tell fortunes, and their patrons never go away without having their fates foretold. I noticed when paying for articles, merchants invariably weigh the money. It is also customary for merchants to put their private stamp upon silver dollars as an assurance of its legality and worth. Much silver is beaten into strange shapes by this queer practice that at first I was afraid to accept it as change. I saw a marriage procession in Hong Kong. A large band of musicians, who succeeded in making themselves heard, were followed by coolies carrying curious-looking objects in blue and gilt, which I was told represent mythical and historical scenes. A number of very elegant Chinese lanterns and gorgeous-looking banners were also carried along. I was told that in such processions they carry roast pig to the temples of the Josses, but it is afterwards very sensibly carried off by the participants. It would be a hopeless thing for a man to go to Hong Kong in search of employment. The banking and shipping houses, controlled by Europeans, certainly employ numbers of men, but they are brought from England under three and five years' contracts. When a vacancy occurs from a death or a transfer, the business house immediately consults its representatives in London, where another man signs an agreement and comes out to Hong Kong to work. One day I went up to Victoria Peak, named in honor of the Queen. It is said to be 1,800 feet high, the highest point on the island. An elevated tramway is built from the town to Victoria Gap, 1,100 feet above the sea. It was opened in 1887. Before that time, people were carried up in sedans. The first year after its completion, 148,344 passengers were carried up the mountainside. The fare is 30 cents up and 15 cents down. During the summer months, Hong Kong is so hot that those who are in a position to do so seek the mountaintop, where a breeze lives all the year round. Level places for buildings are obtained by blasting, and every brick, stone, and bit of household furniture is carried by coolies from the town up to the height of 1,600 feet. At the Gap, we secured sedan chairs, and we were carried to the Hotel Craigaburn, which is managed by a colored man. The hotel, oriental in style, 
is very liberally patronized by the citizens of Hong Kong, as well as visitors. After the proprietor had shown us over the hotel, and given us a dinner that could not be surpassed, we were carried to Victoria Peak. It required three men to a chair ascending the peak. At the umbrella seat, merely a bench with a peaked roof, everybody stops long enough to allow the coolies to rest. Then we continue on our way, passing sightseers and nurses with children. After a while they stop again, and we travel on foot to the signal station. The view is superb. The bay, in a breastwork of mountains, lies calm and serene, dotted with hundreds of ships that seem like tiny toys. The palatial white houses come halfway up the mountainside, beginning at the edge of the glassy bay. Every house we notice has a tennis court blasted out of the mountainside. They say that night after night the view from the peak is unsurpassed. One seems to be suspended between two heavens. Every one of the several thousand boats and sampans carries a light after dark. This, with the lights on the roads and in the houses, seems to be a sky more filled with stars than the one above. Early one morning a gentleman, who was the proud possessor of a team of ponies, the finest in Hong Kong, called at the hotel to take me for a drive. In a low, easy phaeton behind the spirited ponies that seemed like playthings in their smallness but giants in their strength, we whirled along through the town and were soon on the road edging the bay. We had a good view of the beautiful dry dock on the other side, which is constructed entirely of granite, and is said to be of such size that it can take the largest vessels afloat. I thought there were other things more interesting, so I refused to go over to it. During our drive we visited two quaint and dirty temples. One was a plain little affair with a gaudy altar. The stone steps leading to it were filled with beggars of all sizes, shapes, diseases, and conditions of filth. They were so repulsive that instead of appealing to one's sympathy, they only succeeded in arousing one's disgust. At another temple, nearby a public laundry where the washer stood in a shallow stream slapping the clothes on flat stones, was a quaint temple hewed cave-like in the side of an enormous rock. A selvage of rock formed the altar, and to that humble but picturesque temple Chinese women flocked to pray for sons to be born unto them, that they may have someone to support them in their old age. After seeing everything of interest in Hong Kong, I decided to go to a real, Simon-pure Chinese city. I knew we were trying to keep the Chinamen out of America, so I decided to see all of them I could while in their land, pay them a farewell visit, as it were. So, on Christmas Eve, I started for the city of Canton. <laughs> 